This is Global Mining News, available worldwide on the internet. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. Welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. As usual, there is almost too much to discuss. The Dow has broken 30,000, and Bitcoin is targeting all-time highs. Last I checked, it's at $19,200. Altcoins like Ethereum and everything else, not Bitcoin, had a probably the biggest rally I've ever seen in my life in an asset class yesterday. You barely saw it on the news, although CNBC, the website, they had it the third story. Like they can't not report it because it was just like a face ripping rally. It was a face ripping rally. I've never seen anything like that. Where you look at the top 100 coins, it's like looking at the top 100 stocks in the stock market and everything being between 10 and 150% higher. That's what happened yesterday in crypto. So it hasn't gone away. And so, and then, I mean, last week, and again, we bring this up because of the gold disruption thesis and, you know, the, You know, Ethereum, DeFi, decentralized finance, underlying thesis there, if you're not aware, is the interruption of the entire financial system. Okay, so when I talk about this being a potential tulip mania, South Sea bubble, bull type bull market that could be the largest thing we ever see in our lifetime, that's the sort of thinking that's going underneath that is... If you disrupt the financial system, well, that probably could turn into the biggest bull market of your entire life. Anyways, let's not get lost on that, but there is a final point on the crypto side which relates directly to gold, and this is from BlackRock's CIO, Chief Investment Officer on Fixed Income, and I hear those people are pretty serious people in the fixed income area, and he came on CNBC And he said that cryptocurrency is here to stay and Bitcoin could replace gold. Now, that's BlackRock, who, according to this article in Bitcoin.com, but it was everywhere, I just, first thing that showed up in Google News, Rick Reeder, BlackRock's chief investment officer of global fixed income, talked about Bitcoin replacing gold in an interview and... Let's go to the quotes here because there's no sense dancing around this. Uh, I just want to touch on it before we move on because you know what the other side with all these markets taking off? You look at gold and we're going to get to this quote in a second here. Let's look at gold. I mean, it's like, yeah. You know what gold's trading at? $1,802.60. Down 1.91%. We turn over to Bitcoin, up $1,055, up 5.7% today, $19,286. If this thing keeps up, you're going to be trading like the price of gold on a daily basis in Bitcoin. So let's just finish this BlackRock thing and then we can move on and forget about crypto for the rest of the show. But uh, this is, we're talking about some serious disruptions here and there has been a ton of media coverage, but when you consider the scale of what might be happening, 
it's still actually kind of flying under the radar. Let's take a look at what BlackRock CIO Rick Reeder said on CNBC. I think it is durable, and you've seen the central banks that have talked about digital currencies. I think digital currency and the receptivity, particularly millennials' receptivity, again, don't forget these millennials are playing video games and trading, you know, even Minecraft. I think there's little tokens. I mean, so they're used to this thing, particularly millennials' receptivity of technology and cryptocurrency is real. Digital payment systems are real. So I think Bitcoin is here to stay. And then here's the money quote, but do I think it is a durable mechanism that could replace gold to a large extent? Yeah, I do, because it's so much more functional than passing a bar of gold around. Now, if you watch the Global Mining Symposium in my brief appearance, that was exactly the point I made. I've owned gold and Luckily, Scotia Mercado, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but it's the gold desk in Toronto at the Scotia Bank where you could buy gold. I've taken that elevator in the main Scotia Bank in downtown Toronto, as I'm sure some of you listeners have as well, into that tiny little room and where they have the safety deposit boxes and where you could pick up gold. And I'm actually so glad I did that because I felt like I was it's almost like an indoctrination of sorts. I wasn't working for the Northern Miner at that point. I didn't know like what I, I had a clue what mining was probably from watching the teaching company. But you know, I'd never actually. I, I took geography, not geology, anyway. But I sure learned something that day when I felt a piece of yellow metal in my hand, and my hand went down from the weight of it. And I thought, oh, this is money. Nevertheless, like I, I think they closed down that shop. So I don't even know where you take your gold. Like the part of the problem with the gold investment, like in terms of actually taking delivery or going out and buying coins, let's say you make 30% on your gold, right? Okay. I did fantastic. And then you have to assay it. And then like, it's just, to me, there's a, like in theory, gold is super liquid in practice. How liquid is that? Like, it seems it's almost, it's not as illiquid as real estate, but it's like, and who do you have to trust? How much do you lose on the fees? You know, you make their brilliant guess or your brilliant judgment and you make 30%, you make 100%. How much do you lose on getting out? How easy is it to get out of it? And feel free to email me. Like maybe it's super easy and I'm just not aware, but what was cool about Scotia Mercado, and I, again, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, is they would give you a receipt. And when you went back to the desk, if you had your receipt with you, you didn't need to get anything assayed. And I guess they put all the information they needed and your ID. So they just knew it's like, okay, you bought the gold. We don't have a million people buying gold here. There is the gold. It looks like the gold. It weighs like the gold. Here is your money. So that is closed now. So as far as I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, but we had a story about six months ago. And yeah, it was in an editorial by editor-in-chief Trish Saywell, but that was a really big deal. I thought that was that was almost like a front page. That was a mega story from a Canadian gold perspective, from a retail perspective, one might say. Anyway, I digress. So let's get into these news stories, and we have quite a long, fantastic, in-depth interview with David Rosenberg, rock star economist. So we're going to, I'll do just maybe three or four stories here, do the metal prices quickly, and let's get into this interview. 
So if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner. You can find us on Instagram at The Northern Miner. You can find us on LinkedIn and Facebook. And you can also find us on YouTube where we host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turn into the website. Quick note on my little anecdote of taking the elevator. I think that was in Montreal. I, but I, I bought my gold and silver in Montreal, and I think I sold it in Toronto. Because I remember Toronto, it's actually right in the middle. They have that huge sort of open space. I was thinking about Montreal, the Scotiabank in Montreal, where you take the tiny elevator, et cetera, et cetera. Just in case anybody's wondering, I don't remember an elevator. It was in Montreal, downtown. Anyways, turning to the news, Glencore doesn't seem to have learned the lesson that Rio Tinto learned very recently. Here is the headline, Glencore heads for collision with Australia's sacred sites authority over MacArthur River expansion. It's by Cecilia Jamasmi, mining.com. So let's just see what the story says, because it seems unbelievable given everything that's happened, but maybe I don't understand. Let's take a closer look. Glencore has been given the green light to expand its MacArthur River zinc mine in Australia's Northern Territory against the advice of the state's own sacred sites authority, which says it has not cleared the plan yet. I mean, they just had a huge scandal, global scandal. Where's Chris Hind on this? (laughs) The state government's approval would allow Glencore to double the size of the mine extending MacArthur River's productive life until 2048. It also secures the jobs of about 1,100 employees and contractors, the state said. As part of the permit, Glencore must comply with all relevant legislative requirements and conditions of authorization, including those relating to the Northern Territory Aboriginal Sacred Sites Act of 1989, Under Northern Territory law, companies must have permission from the Aboriginal Areas Protection Authority, AAPA, before they can alter or remove any sacred site. So as part of the permit, Glencore has to comply with the legislative requirements and conditions of authorization, including those relating to the Northern Territory Aboriginal Sacred Sites of 1989, Under Northern Territory law, companies must have permission from the AAPA, which is the Aboriginal Areas Protection Authority, before they can alter or remove any sacred site. So that seems straight up. It's like, okay, so they need permission from this Aboriginal Areas Protection Authority. The authority noted on November 19th, just last week, that it had previously rejected the company's application for a certificate. It also requested more consultation with traditional owners in regard to potential damage to sacred and heritage sites, which frankly is the very minimum you would expect after the massive scandal with Rio Tinto, probably the biggest story in mining in 2020. Okay, so the AAPA said Glencore's appeal against the decision was still with the state government And the announcement of the plan's approval was concerning. So it sounds like the AAPA had made some requests and that Glencore appealed against that, as far as I'm understanding the language of this 
news article. And then we have a quote from AAPA chairman Bobby Nungamajbar, who said in an emailed statement, quote, it was very sad for us. We have given Glencore a lot of chances to work with us, but they haven't done it. So it's a little shocking. Like, it, as far as I understand this story, like, they haven't blown anything up yet, like Rio Tinto did, but sounds like they could be on the way if I understand this correct. Glencore has waited for the expansion's final approval since 2018 when the Northern Territory's Environmental Protection Authority, EPA, found sacred sites could be damaged by the mine's expansion, but recommended its approval on the basis that the risk of further environmental damage would be higher if the miner left the site. Well, that's a new argument. That's what you get the $100 million an hour lawyers for, isn't it? Well, actually, if we leave, it's going to cause more damage. Maybe they're right. Maybe Maybe I'm being unfair. Who knows? I don't know anything about this mine other than that it exists and Glencore owns it and that it's in Australia operating since 1995. Here it is. MacArthur is one of the world's largest sink mines. Last year, it contributed more than U.S. $400 million to the local economy. It produced 271,200 tons of zinc, 55,000 tons of lead, and 1.67 million ounces of silver in 2019. And so that's it. I mean, there's a little bit more, but yeah. I, yeah, I, I, I need more details on that. So Cecilia Jamazmi, should you be looking for a subject to tackle, I would love to hear a follow-up on what on earth is going on over there. Because it, my question as a reporter would be, if I was asking Glencourt, like, did you, like, how does what you're doing relate to Rio Tinto and how is it different other than the fact that you haven't blown anything up? Like, help me out. So, okay. Now, this next story is actually, I mean, Cardinal Resources, I confess I've never really liked their name. Like, I feel for the Cardinal Resources. But man, this story I do like it's like from a dramatic perspective, it's really uh, amping up. Cardinal Resources attracts third bidder in takeover wars. So remember, China's Shandong Gold and Russia's Norgold were fighting over Cardinal Resources, which is in which country was it in Ghana, right? So geopolitical undertone city and. Now, there appears to be a third bidder, Cecilia Jamazmi, Mining.com. A long-running battle between Norgold and China's Shandong Gold over Cardinal Resources has taken an unexpected turn after a Ghanaian firm formally presented on Tuesday an all-cash, unsolicited offer for the Australian miner. Wow. Engineers and Planners Company is topping previous bids for Cardinal with a conditional off-market takeover of $1.10 US per share. That would give it control of the target company's gold asset in Ghana. Fascinating. The acquisition of Cardinal's Namdini project would allow engineers and planners company to create thousands of jobs and maximize Ghanaian revenues, the bidder said. You know, 
whatever country a gold mine is in, I'm kind of always cheering for the country owning the mine. Uh, that, you know, like the people from that country benefiting most from that mine. So I can't say I think that's a terrible outcome here. Namdini is expected to churn out 4.2 million ounces of gold over a 15-year mine life, with an estimated 1.1 million ounces to be produced over the first three years of the operation. The project's development cost is currently pegged between $275 and $426 million, depending on the project's final scale. So it's not huge, but it's big enough. I mean, again, we always have our metric here. 4.2 million ounces of gold over 15 years. So over 15 years, they'd mine almost a barrack, right? Which is at 5 million ounces per year, right? So just to give you a little perspective there. So it's not massive, but it's not small either. So the first one to react was the Chinese miner, Shandong, which increased its offer for Cardinal to $1.05 Australian per share, matching the Ghanaian suitor. So these guys just don't give up, do they? Nordgold opted for disregarding the third bidder. Quote, in the present circumstances, Nordgold considers that a bid which is not an unconditional fully funded cash bid is unlikely to constitute a competing offer for the purposes of the best and final statements. Engineer and planner's offer is conditional upon 50.1% minimum acceptance by cardinal shareholders, as well as regulatory approvals. This is turning into a bit of a foreign policy mess. These approvals include the Foreign Investment Review Board in Australia and relevant authorities in Ghana. Now, let's not forget. So, Cardinal is an Australian company. Shandong is trying to take over this. And let's not forget the brutal... Uh, we're not even, like, in the Northern Minor. We haven't covered all the details of what's going on between... We've touched on it. But there are some... It's really getting nasty between China and Australia. So here's Shandong trying to take over this Australian mine in Ghana. Australian miner in Ghana. So... That's all we have there. So, plot thickens. Uh, Just I want to touch on this because, well, people are going to lose their jobs potentially. Paulson & Co., which is an investment management firm, uh, pushes to close Midas Gold's Vancouver office. Investment management firm Paulson & Co. said today it would call a special meeting of shareholders to, quote, refresh Midas Gold's board in which the New York-based company has a 44.1% stake. Paulson believes it is in Midas Gold's long-term best interest to become a U.S.-listed and based company committed to the restoration and development of the Stibnite Gold Project. And the Stibnite Gold, Silver, and Antimony mine would require a $1 billion investment, provide in 1,000 direct and indirect jobs. Well, if you add indirect, that's in Idaho. Sounds like it's by a salmon river. I don't know. So... Okay, so Paulson believes it is in Midas Gold's best interest to become a U.S.-listed and based company. So now they want to take it out. So first they're building by a salmon river, and now they're trying to take it out of Vancouver, take it out of Canada. So here's a quote. Redomiciling from Canada to the U.S. will streamline Midas Gold's corporate structure by eliminating duplicate overheads, including the Vancouver office, thereby empowering employees in Idaho to continue advancing the project. 
Well, of course, yeah, we're going to fire you all. We're going to lay you all off in order to empower the employees in Idaho to continue advancing the project. I don't know if I can keep reading this because my disdain is growing by the word here. Like, I understand if they need to close it, but this isn't even the company. This is like some investment firm that owns a 44.1% stake. Now, get this. Okay, right. So, and about that Salmon River, despite Paulson's optimism, I don't know who these corporate raiders are, there are a few groups that oppose Midas Gold's project. They include Idaho Rivers United, Idaho Conservation League, Native American Tribes, American Whitewater, Trout Unlimited, Anglers, Kayakers, Recreators, and basically anybody who says the quality of their life depends on the river. Well, as long as money is your main driving factor of your life, this makes perfect sense, doesn't it? And look at the name. Midas Gold has already invested more than $200 million in exploring, evaluating, and planning the project. Now, I should separate Midas Gold from Paulson & Co., who seem to be really on a mission. But this whole thing, uh uh-oh, uh-oh. Barrick, the world's second largest gold miner, also has a 20% stake in the company. All those beautiful green web pages on Barrick.com. I don't know what they're going to have to say about this project. Well, let's hope it all makes a lot of money for everybody over there. So moving on. And finally, this is just an interesting, this is kind of where our little discussions on currency and financial system meets mining. Zambia's copper output increases as country defaults on foreign debt. I'll give that like the most creative angle on a story I've seen in the this year in the Northern Miner. Actually, who is this? Cecilia Jamasmi, who is just writing a storm here. Zambia's copper output increases as country defaults on foreign debt. Kind of a hilarious juxtaposition there. Let's take a closer look. Zambia, Africa's second Second largest copper miner produced 646,000 tons of the metal in the first nine months of 2020, up from 590,000 tons in the same period last year, official figures show. And government ministry attributed the 9.45% rise to increased mine output. They now expect total production for the year to reach 820,000 tons, driven by rising copper prices. And here it is. This comes as good news to Zambia which skipped a $42.5 million U.S. interest payment on part of its international debt last week. The country is the first African country to default during the coronavirus pandemic. It is kind of amazing how few defaults we actually have heard, but there are pretty crazy things going on when you actually look at South America. So I'm not sure. Maybe there's more going on than I'm aware of. Apparently, yeah, the Venezuelan currency is just kind of falling like a rock. President Edgar Lungu's government, which is battling for re-election next year, has blamed COVID-19 for problems managing the country's $12 billion of debt. Gosh, what a Western country would do to have only $12 billion of debt. God, you could have Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos could just call up President Edgar Lungu and say, listen, it's not going to hurt me. I want to do some good. 
Anyways, finally, uh, while it seeks a compromise with bondholders, the government has announced it has no plans to sell its stake in mining companies in order to raise cash. So anyway, yeah, so there you have it. So they're increasing their copper output, but they are defaulting on debt. So, but they're not letting go of those assets. And yeah, it's hard to blame them. Uh, Okay, so those are your news stories. Let's turn to the metal prices. metal prices we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week and on november 24th gold is trading at one thousand eight hundred and five dollars and 83 cents that is 85 dollars lower than last week's quote Silver is trading at $23.20 per ounce. That is $1.45 lower than last week's quote. Platinum is trading at $961.59 per ounce. That is $38 higher than last week's quote. And palladium is trading at $2,353.25 per ounce. That is $16 higher than last week's quote. So gold and silver down, platinum, palladium up a tiny bit. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $3.27 per pound. That is 13 cents higher than last week's quote. Aluminum is trading up 2 cents at 89 cents per pound. Lead is trading up 4 cents at 90 cents per pound. Nickel is at $7.27 per pound. That is 10 cents higher than last week's quote. And tin is trading at $8.54 per pound. That is 19 cents higher than last week. And cobalt is trading lower at $14.51 per pound. And that is 21 cents lower than last week's quote. And finally, zinc steals the show at the end at $1.25 per pound. That is 6 cents higher. And the highest quote we have had here since we started measuring metal prices a year and a half ago. So zinc, my friend, zinc. And let's just not forget our Glencore zinc mine story that topped our news stories. Coincidence? I think not. So a bit of movement higher on the industrial metals. Precious metals pulled back, except for platinum and palladium, arguably their industrial side edge up a little higher, and zinc steals the show. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have world-renowned economist David Rosenberg, Canadian, 99% sure. And I believe he's in Toronto, and he is president and chief economist and strategist of Rosenberg Research and Associates, an economic consulting firm he established in January 2020. And he is really well-known on Wall Street for, I think it's called Breakfast with Dave, which is a newsletter. Anyways, Anthony Vaccaro, our group publisher at the Northern Miner, interviewed Mr. Rosenberg at the Global Mining Symposium earlier this month on November 12th, I believe. And it was a rock'em, sock'em interview. So without further ado, I will let you listen to that and I will see you on the other side.
honor to have you here, David. I've been a reader of your research for a long, long time. I even I had been reading your research, but one thing that really stands out for me and my wife, we were dating at the time, but went to see you at the Monk Debates back in 2011 when you took on uh, Larry Summers there around the 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 growth the the picture for global growth at that time. I don't remember if you were, that's going back nine years. I don't know if it meant more to me than it did to you, but that was a great, great debate. And you, uh, you really held your, you held your own with, with, uh, with Summers on that one. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And as uh, I would still say his elbows are sharper than mine, but um, <laughs> this, the scars have healed, thankfully. That, well, that's, what you nine, know, he, that's what nine years will do. Yeah. There you go. That's what nine years is for. Build up those calluses for sure. Uh, David, wow. I mean, who would have thought we'd be in times like this? And that's why we thought it was so important for all of our viewers and leaders to bring someone of your ilk on board to try to really uh, tackle some of these big issues and give us some clarity on them. We could think of no one better than you to provide that. Uh, for those of you who aren't with uh, Rosenberg Research, you can go to uh, Rosenberg Research's site and you can do a one month trial. So I highly, highly recommend at least at minimum doing that seeing all the great reports breakfast with David comes out every morning. Uh, and that's where you need to go to really stay on top of what is happening. Uh, David, why don't we start with the, with the big news? Uh, I've been reading reports all week. Um, obviously the, the vaccine, we started the week with that. We have to get into us elections. We have all this stuff to get into, but why don't we start with the impact of the vaccine? Is this a really big deal? Does this materially change outlooks? on global growth patterns going forward into 2021? Well, look, the uh, I always said that the vaccine uh, was going to be a huge game changer. And uh, I think that every economist pretty well had in their forecast for next year, or they should have had uh, a vaccine that's effective, uh, that comes to the market, that we will all somehow uh, become inoculated, at least uh, in North America, uh, my guesstimate was going to be a second half of the year story, maybe early 2022. So uh, I was sort of in the uh, in the Anthony uh, Fauci camp that it was going to be later rather than sooner. Uh, I think that, you know, the excitement, at least initially uh, over the Pfizer announcement was really twofold. The first uh, was the speed at, at which they say they can get uh, the vaccines ready for, I mean, to emergency workers, frontline workers, you know, in the next couple of months, uh, that was a, actually a big surprise. And I think the, the really big one was the 90% efficacy rate, because uh, I mean, <laughs> that's like what the what the shot is for the measles, uh, you know, that that basically would uh, eliminate um, almost all the uncertainty, you have 90%. I mean, that is the gold standard. Uh, most people thought, well, maybe it'll be, you know, 60, 70 max. Uh, so I uh, look, uh, that was big news. It was still a preliminary trial, uh, but it exceeded expectations and you saw the market reaction. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, we have Moderna, we have a lot of other companies uh, that have a very similar model as, uh, as Pfizer has. So we have to have that assumption that we're going to get to the other side of the mountain. It's really a question uh, as to when. I think that, you know, one of the concerns was going to be you know, will people take the vaccine? Won't, you know, won't, won't, won't there still be a lot of people that won't take the vaccine for whatever reason? But look, if we have 90% efficacy levels, uh, you won't need everybody to take it. So look, it's, it's very big news. We'll see the extent to which it comes to fruition. Uh, I think that it's going to produce what you think it would produce. Uh, the day we get the vaccine, uh, the very next quarter, maybe two quarters, we're going to have a huge pent up demand boost in a lot of the areas of the economy that we 
either have shunned or we've been told not to go to. Uh, and principally uh, travel and leisure, uh, tourism, uh, people will start to fly again. So we will see a couple of quarters of a huge bounce. And then the question is going to be, you know, uh, what does a, a new normal look like? Like what everybody talks about going back, you know, to some normal. And, and I would say that um, uh, there's going to be a new normal, not an old normal. It doesn't mean that we don't go back for a while uh, and spend more money and get more re-engaged. Um, but there's been a lot of fundamental shifts that have already occurred uh, that aren't going to change. And one of the things that I've been talking about is what I call the home body economy, uh, the stay at home, work at home economy. Uh, that's here to stay. Uh, and you're going to find that compared to what life was like before, a much larger percentage of the working population uh, is going to work at home. Uh, not everybody, uh, but a lot of people want to work from home. Uh, maybe those of us that don't have little kids running around, but a lot of people have found that A, they're more productive at home, B, and this is what I hear over and over again, and it's in the survey data, the amount of money and time people are saving by not having to commute uh, from the suburbs to the inner city core. Uh, so I think that, you know, after all the investments that have been made on remodeling your home and rewiring your home to become your office, um, that was really an investment. And so uh, where we work, uh, how we travel uh, within the city itself is going to change materially. And that's why I'm saying that to varying extents, things will come back. Uh, what comes back the latest and the least is going to be office real estate. I think that's going to be an overhang for a long period to come. Interesting. It, it, on the positive side, how does one partake in that home par, uh, that homebody thesis, given that you can only renovate so much, kind of like once you've done your house, it would make sense the Lowe's and the Home Depot's of the world. But how do, how do you continue to partake in that going further out? Well, you're, you're right on that. But I think that the servicing side, uh, the ongoing um, money it's going to take, whether it's through upgrading or through uh, internet services, uh, telecom services, uh, all those services that you're going to need to run your office in your home, that's going to be recurring expenditure. You're 100% right. You're only going to remodel your house once. You're only going to, you know, uh, renovate your backyard uh, once or maybe once every 10 years. So that part is 100% correct. But then you, you take it to the next level, which is, well, you know, you, you spent all this money remodeling your house to become your office or remodeling your house because you're spending more time in it. Um, you know, uh, you're going to want to spend more time in it. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, the same holds true, you know, with your backyard and the, the new deck that you built. It doesn't mean that you're not going to go take vacations, but at the margin, you're going to spend more time doing things in your house. Look, there was a big article uh, in the uh, New York Times today uh, about uh, how so many new expensive homes, bigger homes are being purchased. Why is that? Because people came out of the pandemic with a secular shift in attitudes uh, and what they have a greater appreciation of uh, is open space. And you can imagine all those people with young families living in small condos or apartment buildings on the 30th floor where they were scared for months to even take an elevator. Um, and that's why you're seeing this really big and I think sustained boom in the demand for residential real estate in the form of what I call uh, bungalows in the burbs with a backyard because I love alliterations. Um, <laughs> but we have we have that desire now coming out of the pandemic, uh, a much greater appreciation. I mean, not just for hygiene and all the stuff that we take for granted, uh, but a much greater appreciation 
for open space. Uh, and that's why you're seeing a shift from multifamily to single family. But you're quite right. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, we had a, a like a boom in remodeling. That's not going to be sustained. I think the growth will be sustained, not at the uh, trajectory that we were on. Uh, but I think that the servicing side, you know, when you're talking about um, the service providers, especially in technology, in delivery services, technology services, uh, internet services, uh, th that's a recurring, and you want to actually focus your investments to some extent in those companies that generate that recurring cash flow stream uh, from the work at home theme that I don't think is going to be going away anytime soon. Okay. I, I, let's continue with the secular kind of shift. So secular shift around real estate and around how we're living. Let's, let's extrapolate and move over to the bond market a bit. You had a really interesting one in uh, your breakfast with Dave note um, from the other day about, I couldn't believe it about Greek yields, Greek yields being like something ridiculous, like six basis points, like just crazy how low they are. What is that telling us about the bond market? Is there a secular shift going on there as well? Please explain this to me. How is that possible? Well, I, I know it's a, it, well, this is this is the world that we're in. We're, we're in a world where where central banks have taken over. Uh, I mean, whether it's uh, Jay Powell or, or whether uh, it's uh, Madame Lagarde uh, or, or whether it's uh, any major central banker right now is operating a casino. Uh, and, you know, people like Jay Powell, as an example, they're the blackjack dealer handing out uh, the uh, the chips for free. So. Uh, actually, the, the, the two-year Greek bond yield is, is negative six basis points, negative six. Uh, and um, their 10-year yield is trading 15 basis points below where 10-year treasuries are. Now, say what you want about the United States. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> it is still a AAA-rated credit. Still AAA in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king, and the U.S. is still AAA. Uh, Greece is junk. That's a junk bond. Yeah. So we live in a, in a, in a, in a world of the capital markets uh, where a junk bond credit trades at a negative yield at the front end of the curve at a discount to the most liquid and safest security in the planet, which are U.S. treasuries. And, and it just leads you to believe all the manipulations and intervention by all these central banks. Uh, I mean, I went into this, I went into this situation, this pandemic, and I was saying uh, for a while, uh, I'm really worried about the next recession because the Fed and other central banks are out of, they're out of policy bullets. The Fed, the Fed is out of policy yep. bullets. We went into this mess with uh, the funds rate at 2%. Historically in a recession, the Fed cuts the funds rate by five percentage points. So I was saying, well, are they really going to get the funds rate to negative three? Mm -hmm. uh, now we saw what they did in the last cycle, right? Well, they they did the quantitative easing. Okay, so okay, they bought treasuries, AAA. They bought AAA mortgages. But look what Powell did this time: bought CMBS. Uh, they bought uh, corporate bonds, investment grade, and but the big kicker was high yield. When when you saw basically even in the context of the economic data going vertical down. The stock market surged. Yeah. Everything surged from a risk asset standpoint because people started believing, boy, if they're going in to buy high yield and high yield resides in the capital structure right next to the equity market, I was getting questions all the time. So what's next? Are they going to actually start to buy, buy equities? Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, but that's the world. So basically what I was saying, if you remember, um, you know, the tagline in that report that I wrote 
in Breakfast with Dave was it's a mad, mad, mad world. Yeah. Uh, and it just goes to show like here are so many people went to business school and finance school learning about Harry Markowitz's uh, Nobel Prize winner in finance, the capital asset pricing model. Well, what interest rate are you going to use? Yeah. And so that's, that's where, you know, when we're talking to investors, you know, uh, and people are saying, well, look, well, why is the stock market doing what it's doing? And this is actually, it's one thing to have the market go up when the data is going up. When the data was going down, the stock market was surging. But what is, what's the valuations you put on anything? When you have set over 17 trillion, see, Greece, Greece is just an extreme example because Greece is in Germany, okay? It's a, it's a junk bond trading with a negative yield. Uh, but we have over $17 trillion of bonds globally. That's with a T. 17 trillion, you're talking like a, what, like a third of the global bond market trades with a negative yield. So how do you do valuations when you're doing your dividend discount model or you're doing your, your cap rate model for real estate? Um, you're trying to discount future cash flows. <laughs> well, in a negative rate world, they just go to infinity. Uh, yeah. so, so what I'm saying is that it, it's very difficult. Uh, you know, what I try and do is, is try and attach some common sense and fundamentals. Um, to the analysis. Uh, but I think that the central banks in some ways have really destroyed uh, any semblance of, of risk versus reward uh, in an organic sense. Uh, and I would just go, for example, go to the corporate bond market, seriously. Do you mean to tell me, I mean, we, we call high yield today, the, the, the junk bond market. Okay, we'll be, we won't call it junk. We'll call it uh, high yield, high yield. 5% is high yield today. 5% is high yield. Uh, where treasury yields were trading a decade ago, that's, you see, high yield, which is really a bedrock of the fixed income market. Yeah. High yield it, has become an oxymoron. 5%, it, people buy 5%. Um, portfolio managers are buying 5% high yield bonds. There's no, not a snowball's chance in hell that that compensates you for default risk today that's it. or yep. default risk down the road. So, what I'm saying is that is that uh, the central bankers, in the name of the greater good, because they can only operate their policy through the financial markets, and then the financial markets, they hope, has an impact on the real economy. I mean, they're flying blind and they're massively desperate because of the COVID and the, all the economic damage that's been done. Um, it's fiscal policy, and this is one thing I agree with Jay Powell on 100%, is fiscal policy has got to be the answer. And then we have to basically decide, as we come up the other side of the mountain, how we're going to redress all these massive deficits and debts that that's such a huge statement so you feel that they don't the the monetary policy no longer has the torque it can't that's what we're seeing right now that's why these valuations are just going crazy well that's well that's you know look uh, i i did say you know i, I mean I, I i would say i was i was mistaken to say that the central bank was out of bullets they were out of see i should have included this word they were out of conventional bullets now, remember quantitative easing, the way we knew it in 08 and 09, I mean, buying treasuries. Oh, that's so passe, or buying AAA mortgages. I mean, so conventional, you know, nobody even heard of QE. Who, who heard of quantitative easing before 2008? Well, Ben Bernanke did, but who in the investment business knew about QE? Oh, but, but let me tell you, in the past 10 years, I mean, my, my, my kids when they were in high school knew what QE was. Who didn't know what QE, but QE, did not mean the central bank coming in and buying junk bonds and then having people saying, well, I bet you equities are going to be next. And then the greater fool's theory, I got to come in and buy equities before Jay Powell does uh, with BlackRock uh, as his asset manager uh, and advisor. So 
Um, it seems to me that the central banks, are they desperate? Obviously, obviously, when you're coming in and buying high yield bonds to generate risk appetite in the hope that that's going to resuscitate the economy, uh, you're pretty desperate. It's a very weak link. Um, it's very obvious. Look, the economy right now, you know, we had uh, the detonation in the second quarter. We had the nice snapback in the third quarter. But the snapback in the third quarter, whether you're looking at it in the U.S. or Canada, was all fiscal policy. That was all the government basically giving you money to stay alive or to spend. And actually, they gave you more than what the economy lost. So we had this gargantuan rebound in the third quarter, which was basically government transfers. That wasn't monetary policy. What monetary policy gave you was a huge bull market in everything, except maybe cash. Uh, so the central banks gave you dramatic asset inflation, financial asset inflation in particular, has a very weak link to the real economy. Mm -hmm. uh, and we all know that even in the old days, when all we talked about was interest rates, yep. uh, the lag between what the Bank of Canada or the Fed did with interest rates would hit the real economy, Main Street, with lags that were four, six, eight quarters. The central bank always operates with lags when it comes to the real economy. Oh, 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 oh. But when we talk about the financial economy, bang, day one. But the link between Wall Street and Main Street or Bay Street and Main Street, it's a very loose link. So in answer to your question, yeah, I think that the central banks have, um, I mean, look, when you, when you read the words coming from Jay Powell this year, it sounds like he's gone from an investment banker, which was his previous uh, profession, becomes a central banker. And now he's almost sounds like a social worker. Uh, and I tip my hat out to him because he's got a big job and the economy is one of them. Um, but the Fed is a is a really a, ultimately a provider of liquidity. Um, we also find out that they can manipulate uh, asset markets. Um, but if their ability was to resuscitate the economy on a durable multi-quarter acceleration process, after everything they've done, including boosting the money supply 25% in the process, um, very loose link between what they're doing and what the real economy is doing uh, and what they're doing with financial assets though is very interesting. It's basically easy peasy. You're an investor. That's how these Robinhood accounts are popped up. Just basically pin the tail on the donkey. That's what this game has become. Uh, it, investing shouldn't be that easy, but the central banks have made it that way. Well, and if I'm following correctly, so normally we think of back in the 70s, mon monetary policy being about driving rates down and getting the economy going that way. Then you get to near zero, you can't do that anymore. So then we have quantitative easing, right? Then it's just buy financial assets, release money into the system. There's only so much of that you can do. So now we're into fiscal where we're putting payments straight into citizens' pockets, I guess, in a way. What does all this mean? What does that trajectory tell us about the value of money and how that wraps in with inflation and what that could mean for gold. Can you, well, can absolutely. Well, you know, when we talk about gold, we can talk about a, a bunch of different things with gold. Uh, you know, the fact that it has a almost perfectly inverse correlation with negative interest rates. Uh, we have an unprecedented $17 trillion of, of, of negative yielding fixed income instruments around the world. Uh, I expect over time that that number is, is going to be getting bigger because even once we get past uh, the worst part of the pandemic, uh, the numbers are getting a lot worse now. We all know that, but we'll get to the side of the mountain, but there's still going to be uh, a, a lot of permanent damage to the economy that's got to be restored. It tells me that central banks are going to remain super accommodative for a long period of time. Uh, that tells me that two things. Firstly, uh, that real interest rates are going to stay negative uh, for years to come. 
that is a uh, an ongoing source of support uh, for for gold. Now, look, there could be, you know, it doesn't go up every single month as as we've seen in the past couple of months. And uh, there's a variety of factors that we have to look at on the demand side, but on 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 the correlations uh, with negative rates, the opportunity cost of owning gold is the coupon. And the coupon globally keeps on going negative. Point number one. Point number two is that the central banks, even once we get past, you know, the opening question was about Pfizer. Okay, we have to assume that at some point we're going to get to the other side of the mountain. I mean, even in 08 and 09, uh, it wasn't, we didn't need a vaccine at that point. We just needed the banks to be bailed out. Mm -hmm. Once Geithner and uh, Bernanke uh, firewalled the banks, uh, you know, we, we went, uh, we didn't have a skyrocketing economy, but the worst was over. Uh, Bernanke kept on easing policy, you know, right through to 2015. Gold just kept on going up. Uh, and so even past the worst point of this uh, pandemic cycle, uh, I expect that the central banks are going to continue to do what they're doing. Uh, that's going to be very bullish for gold. And I look on the supply side, you know, look, as an economist, uh, nobody ever, and people will always say, you know, what's, what do you think the price of real estate is going to be, the price of equities, the price of commodities? We're talking about the price of gold. But nobody ever says, well, Mr. Economist, you know, how do you come up with that answer? Well, uh, the economist should tell you, well, here's the thing. Uh, you know, In Economics 101, they teach you how to draw these two curves. One's called supply, one's called demand. <laughs> and we have to know how to uh, draw the direction of those curves and what the, the shape of those curves look like. Because uh, we all know that uh, at the intersection of supply and demand is the holy grail called the price. So when you ask me, where's the price to gold going? I have in my framework where supply and demand is going. And of course, we're measuring gold in dollars or we're measuring gold in fiat currencies. What we know is that not just the US dollar, every central bank is in this together. Global fiat money is growing at a 20 to 25% annual rate. The production of gold globally is going up at a 1% annual rate. Uh, so that tells me if I have a real fundamental view of just what the sub relative supply curves look like, gold is going to remain in a secular bull market, you know, and there's going to be periods for a variety of reasons why gold might pull back. And, you know, it's interesting about the sentiment the past couple of months, you know, uh, you know, with, with the risk on trade coming back, we saw what happened on Monday with Pfizer gold. People say to me, you know, um, oh, should I sell my gold? I said, what? No, actually, I think that you should be buying at a better entry point because this is a fundamental secular bull market. But it's very interesting that when it comes to the equity market, it comes to the equity market, every single dip is to be bought. Every dip. In fact, people, when it was down 30%, you had people on bubble vision saying, got to buy. God forbid gold pulls back 3%. And I got people saying to me, <laughs> should I get in my gold position? I'm saying, you know, that mentality alone from a contrarian standpoint is actually hugely bullish, but it's a very interesting commentary. You know, so much of what we do in the markets is, is psychology driven. Um, but if people are so nervous about gold, they're not nervous about equities. You know, what, do, well, what is that psychology? What does that play there? Do you Greed. Think? It's all about greed. It's yeah. all about greed. N nobody is buying gold for greed. You're buying equities for greed. Okay, the, yeah. I don't hear people talking to the Robinhood accounts saying, oh, I'm going to be buying gold on margin. No, <laughs> you know, so uh, it's about fear and about greed. And the thing about gold is that you're really buying it. Uh, I'm not going to say on fear. That's an exaggeration. Gold is a ballast in the portfolio. It is like having high quality, long duration bonds in your portfolio. It's a ballast. It's a source of stability. And it's an insurance policy against things going wrong because when things go wrong, 
Central banks tend to print a lot more money and your gold is tangible. Your gold is real. Look, it's no different, um, you know, than buying real estate. Just that, you know, you can, you can go buy a piece of real estate is a lot more expensive than buying an ounce of gold. But the point I'm making is that it is a, um, uh, an insurance policy. I say to people all the time who don't have gold in their portfolio or the gold mining stocks in their portfolio. Of course, when you buy the gold miners, you are involved in the equity market, but it doesn't have the same correlation as state technology does. Um, and you'll get more of a torque in the portfolio if gold continues to go up, which I think it will. Um, but I say to people, like, you do have home insurance, right? Yeah, you do have auto insurance. You have, so, so gold is an insurance policy uh, against things going awry. Uh, that you do want to have uh, a tangible asset. Is your feeling that the- your financial exposure in your portfolio? That's where I come out of it. Is your feeling that given the atypical times that we're in, is it, a, is it wise to buy more insurance? So the old rule of thumb with gold is maybe what, 10% of your portfolio? What, what's that percentage given the crazy, the mad, mad world we're in, in your words? Well, you know, it depends on uh, so, so many, it depends on so many things. Um, uh, depends on your age. It depends on your cash flow needs. Uh, and it depends on your tolerance for risk. Um, so it's the one thing that I did learn, you know, those 10 years that I had those last 10 years working on Bay street on the buy side, um, you really do learn that, um, that rare is the day that, 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 that two different families or two different people have the exact profile. So I, I could say for, to somebody, 10% is not enough. Um, and I could say to somebody, 10% is just right. Um, but if I draw in the curve, uh, I wouldn't say right now for anybody, 10% is too low. Uh, I'd say that'd be the low end, but this is talking 20% or 15, I'd have to get to know. I mean, I wouldn't make a blanket statement right. that no, in a particular fair. blind, in a blind asset mix, uh, I don't even know in a traditional asset mix, how that even factors in anymore in a world, see in a world where Greek bonds traded a discount to treasuries in a world where central banks are buying junk bonds, uh, you know, in, in a world where uh, everything is so topsy turvy, I don't even know how you can talk about a really appropriate asset mix. But I would say that um, whatever it is, your gold exposure should be something above zero, uh, 10%. I'm perfectly, if you're gonna say it a blanket statement, if you asked me actually, I would have said probably 10% mm -hmm. is appropriate, but for a lot of other people, uh, it's, a, it's a lot more than that. Uh, I've, I've been advocating actually something a little more diversified, which has been, once again, in the name of alliterations, I've been calling it the bond the bond bullion barbell uh, for the past several years. And it's done remarkably well in the past couple of months. Has it had a, a bit of a sputter? Yeah, but uh, <laughs> that's life in the financial markets. Yeah. Um, but I still like, I also like uh, 30 year treasuries as well uh, for a very similar reason. Um, in terms The bond of bullion uh, barbell is what, 10 years with bullion? I'd say, well, I, well, uh, I say, well, uh, you know, bullion. So I'm talking about either physical gold or, you know, or, or buy, I'd say a high quality uh, gold company, but uh, the bond bullion and then own long dated treasuries against that. Yeah. Okay. You know, if we look, if we get the inflation, gold's going to rip uh, because of its classic store value characteristics. Uh, you know, uh, obviously bonds won't do that well, but it's a, it's, a, it's a nice barbell. The thing is that they both will do well. You see, I still think we're in a world of deflation. We got mm -hmm. those CPI numbers today, right? We got the CPI, the, the, the inflation numbers. And, and I'll tell you why people, people have the wrong idea. They think there's inflation because they're watching the CRB index and they're watching iron ore and they're watching aluminum uh, and they're watching copper 
and uh, they're building this view that well, we have we have commodity inflation. Last I saw, nobody walks into Walmart uh, and, and is looking for a, a pound of copper on the aisle. I don't think that's what they do. We're we're, we're a service sector economy. What's driving? What's going to? What's drive? You see, the most important determinant of inflation, by the way. And let's go back and read Adam Smith and David Ricardo on what's called the theory of rent. And rental rates are deflating. There's an article today yeah. in Manhattan where where rents are actually declining almost 20%. That, that's true across the country. Uh, and um, residential rents are basically 40% of the core CPI, 30%. And, and that's not just that, but you're seeing other service industries. Historically, service sector doesn't deflate. Historically, service industries have pricing power. And what has deflated stationary power, durable goods sector. But what's interesting is that the durable goods sector indeed does have pricing power, don't get me wrong, but that's only about 20% of the pricing pie, 80%. We are a service sector economy. This is not the economy of Davy Crockett. This is so services are actually deflating and that's being driven a lot by rents and that's gonna continue for some time. Bonds are a great hedge against deflation, but guess what? Everybody talks about gold as a hedge against inflation. It's equally, equally a hedge against yeah. deflation because deflation in a period of these massive public and private debts globally increases the real cost of servicing that debt and creates financial instability. And it forces central banks to become even more aggressive. So people don't see that gold is a great hedge against deflation. It is. And so are bonds. And I think at some point we will get inflation, but it could be five years down the road. I'm not interested really. If somebody ever wants to, wants to say to me, what does life look like five or 10 years down the road? I'll get into that with them. Um, but that's like, as far as I'm concerned, that's like, you know, talking about dessert when we're, when we're still serving the appetizers. <laughs> uh, the output gap, the gap between aggregate supply and aggregate demand, I talked before about what does the economist bring to the table in addition to the fact that we just are a fun loving group of people uh, is that we're trained to draw these supply and demand curves and present yeah. it in a coherent way to say that actually for the next several years, deflationary pressure is going to dominate. Guess what? You want to own gold in that environment too. That's really interesting. That kind of a time period, a couple of years out, because I was going to ask you about inflation, but you've tackled that now. For those that really are, though, worried about inflation coming in at some point, what is the leading indicator? You've talked about all that money being out there, but we know the velocity of that money is quite low. Is it is is that velocity? Is that what people need to look for when that picks up? That we could then have a wave of inflation, or is that overly simplistic? No, I think that it's a it's a it, look at that. That's the classic. Um, uh, Fisherian identity, or what they call the quantity theory of money. Uh, I'm not going to get out a blackboard, but you know, MV equals PY, M is money supply, V is velocity. Uh, that quotient is equal to P times Y, which is the price level times real economic activity. So you solve for that. And um, of course, velocity is key because people have been wondering for a long time how could we have all this money printing? No inflation. It's because velocity has been uh, contracting. So what am I watching? Uh, money velocity, uh, we get that data every month. I'm watching it like a hawk, absolutely. Um, and and that's, that's, that's one data point. And, and you can't just look at one data point. I'm really looking more, because I, I, I'm consumed. When people say to me, what keeps you up at night? It, the, the answer hasn't changed in thir 35 years in the business. The answer never changes for me. What keeps me up at night is like, what's my blind spot? Yeah. You know, where, where am I gonna be wrong? Where is the hole 
in my forecast. I, I don't spend too much time patting myself on the back because nobody's got a perfect track, track record, that's for sure. Um, but we have to be cognizant of the fact that we're human. We're going to make mistakes. And I'm always looking for my blind spots. The, the blind spot, I don't think, is going to come from the demand side. I don't think we're going into some, if you're going to ask me, oh, are we going to go into some post-COVID economic boom? We're going to get tremendous demand growth. Come on. How's that going to happen? How is that going to happen? We, we, we came, I, the reason why we didn't get the big inflation with the other quantitative easing in the previous 10 years, if we didn't get the inflation then, what, how are we going to get it now? Because yeah. the fundamental structural factors that impeded the inflation cycle was excessive indebtedness. Excessive indebtedness is a source of deflation, not inflation. It is a huge constraint on future spending. And we have aging demographics, aging demographics. And unfortunately, look, we lost a lot of older people with the COVID, but the reality is that the aging population, the retiring boom uh, amongst uh, the baby boomers, uh, that's just accelerating. And then we come out of the other side of the pandemic with even larger deficits and debts. And I've got news for you, dealing with the deficits and debts uh, is going to be an added constraint on future demand. Where I'm going to be wrong on the inflation, when people say to me, so if you're wrong on the inflation, it's not because I think we're going to have a demand boom. Uh, I, I'm worried about the supply, the supply constraints. Uh, I'm worried that what I talked about before about, you know, the economist has to not only be concerned about how these curves are shifting. I know I'm sounding like an economic professor, but the shape of the curve is also very important. Uh, the more elastic the supply curve is, uh, and remember Ronald Reagan, and then really followed by Bill Clinton, created a very uh, elastic aggregate supply curve, which is why we had tremendous growth with no inflation, as Alan Greenspan picked that up in the mid-1990s. I'm worried about the supply curve becoming more sclerotic over time. I'm worried about the supply curve becoming more inelastic which means that for every unit of demand growth that we get, no matter how puny it may be, could be inflationary if supply is very weak. We always look at GDP, GDP, GDP. GDP is about spending, that's demand. Nobody ever talks about, what about aggregate supply? You only talk about aggregate demand because of course we're consumed with spending. What did GDP do? Consumer spending, construction spending, government spending. Um, the supply curve, you can't forecast inflation with just one curve. You need to have supply. Supply is what? What goes into supply? Really, uh, capital, labor, and land. Well, land is fixed. We have capital and labor. Well, we know that available labor supply, we know the participation rate, which already got impaired, especially the female participation rate, got impaired in this pandemic. Uh, and we could have a situation where we're going to have a lot of pooled of long-term structural unemployed coming out of this situation. That, by the way, is cost push inflation, a lower labor pool for companies to draw off of. So I'm focusing on the participation rate as a supply side. I'm also looking at the productivity numbers. And I'll tell you what has always concerned me. Look at the, when people say to me, oh, oh, let's, uh, can't wait to go back to the old normal. What was that old normal? What was the old normal? Think of what happened in this past 10 years. We had the weakest economic cycle of all time. Do you know that? Weakest economic cycle of all time, and the stock market went up fivefold. 
How is that even possible? And I was saying this, that the stock market and the economy became so divorced from each other, from reality. And it's because we had an earnings cycle that was an earnings cycle called earnings per share. And what companies did was they embarked on the biggest debt for equity swap of all time. Think about that. When I went to school, you see, when I went to school back in the 80s, how naive was I to pay attention to the economic textbooks that when companies issue debt, they issue debt to finance capital expenditure so that they can boost productivity and generate some internally charged rate of return that would more than compensate for the initial cost of capital. Well, that's in the textbooks, right? What happened this time was the biggest corporate debt spree of all time to buy back stock. Boost your earnings per share. Yep. The CEO yep. gets to have his job. And, but the problem is that we had the weakest capital deepening, the, 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 cap, the physical capital in the private sector, the private sector capital stock, Canada, United States, weakest 10-year period of all time. And there's a time-worn link between capital formation and productivity. So here's my concern on the inflation side to, to round this part up is um, we end up with very weak labor force growth and almost no productivity growth. And it means that even if the new normal is going to be something like 2% aggregate demand growth, but only say 0.5 or 1% supply growth, guess what? Inflation comes back a lot more quickly right. than I'm suggesting right now. Uh, so this is not the benevolent demand pull inflation where we got inflation because the economy is vibrant and companies have pricing power. No, no, no. This is called cost push inflation. Cost push inflation in the context of weak aggregate demand is otherwise known as, for those people that were around in the 1970s, know what I'm talking about. It's called stagflation. Stagflation, yep. Scary stuff. There's a lot of social implications to unpack from what you're saying as well. The, the fact that that labor pool isn't going to be what it's like, and you've quoted in your research uh, as many as maybe uh, 10 million people have lost their jobs, maybe not being able to come back. It's not the 1930s where you could come back with unskilled labor, those manufacturing jobs, those are all gone. Um, at the same time, we're seeing the rise of socialism, right? I mean, in the, in the States, uh, Bernie Sanders was probably unimaginable in the 80s and 90s. How are these things all interlinked? What does the democratic uh, victory mean? This isn't Barack Obama's or Bill Clinton's Democratic Party anymore. AOCs have a very different view of the world. Is this going to have negative implications for, for economic growth in the states and in the world? Well, I, I think that uh, you know the, the U.S. election uh, was 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 really interesting, and uh, you, you, you got to be thinking that uh, you know Donald Trump not for one month, got over 50% approval rating. He would end the election with 45%. Um, I, I think that virtually everybody outside of his core base uh, knows the character, or, or I would say even lack thereof. And he still got 72 million votes, uh, which is absolutely remarkable. Uh, and I think that the big, to me, the big headline on the election wasn't that Trump lost, <laughs> although he's fighting it hard. Uh, it's how did we not have a democratic landslide? And in fact, yeah. the blue wave, all we heard what was the blue wave, we didn't get a blue wave. Uh, and so we'll have to wait for those January 5th, uh, two Georgia runoffs. I'm assuming that uh, those two seats will go to the Republicans, but uh, it was very interesting to see the, um, the House uh, majority for the Democrats uh, go down as much as it did. I mean, it looks like it could be at least 10 seats 
Uh, and that hardly ever happens with a president being elected from the same party. So there's a real message here uh, that the country seems to want to go center, center, right, uh, that they do not want to have tax increases. And this was a vote against tax increases. It was a, clearly a vote against a lot of things, um, but it was a vote against tax increases. Uh, and that showed through even down ballot. Uh, there were many states uh, in the House side where tax increases were on the table, they got voted down. So uh, nobody wants to see their taxes go up. Uh, I tend to find in Canada, people don't like it, but taxes, uh, since the days the Liberals got elected in 2015, taxes have gone up. Uh, you can't even raise taxes in the United States for people making over $400,000. So this is a real bottleneck because you gotta be thinking if we, if we don't raise taxes, um, and we're not going to cut spending, and, and, and who's going to be cutting spending? Nobody's going to be cutting spending, and the fact that demog demographic pressures are such that cutting spending will be next to impossible. But we're not going to raise taxes. Uh, we're not going to go through uh, some sort of uh, um, uh, uh, national soul-searching on income inequality, which is a big problem. Yep. Um, and so, you know, people will say, well, you know, boy, this is a vote for gridlock. Gridlock is good. Yeah, it's a vote for gridlock. Uh, you got McConnell here, Pelosi there, um, and then you got uh, Biden. Uh, Biden is reportedly a great deal maker. We'll see how this goes, but it's telling me that we're not going to be getting a fiscal solution. Uh, there's only so much, uh, you know, Biden will be able to do a lot regulatory wise, but not the sort of things that need to be needed to address the, the massive mountain of debt and deficits that will continue to accumulate, because you're quite right. Uh, we certainly don't want to have anarchy or social instability. We're going to have a mountain of long-term unemployed that we didn't have before. Uh, they will have to be supported. Uh, so whatever the new normal is, people think we're going back to some normal. Well, the, 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 the normal coming into this pandemic in the United States was a trillion dollar deficit. You know, that's mm -hmm. one thing that Donald Trump gave us coming into the pandemic was a dilapidated uh, federal government balance sheet. You know, uh, in Canada, it was more the provincial governments that had the dilapidated uh, balance sheet, but um, the balance sheet is the balance sheet. We look at Canada, United States, corporate, uh, household, government, uh, the, the the highest debt to income ratios of all time, and and now we're, it's going to be a permanent feature. How's it going to get financed? So it's telling me that you know when I'm thinking about the future and I'm thinking about the tail risks, and it's not, maybe not even a tail risk anymore. It's something else, by the way, that might influence my inflation view. Is what happens if we actually embark on debt monetization, the debt jubilee, uh, and so that's something that you have to consider. Uh, that you know I, I don't know who the Treasury Secretary is going to be. Uh, a lot of people are saying it could be Janet Yellen. Hmm. And remember, uh, back, and, yeah, and, yeah and, and then who could be Treasury Secretary is somebody who's already on the Fed, who's a classic, uh, I, th I would say left wing Keynesian, it's not an insult, uh, she's she's brilliant, is uh, Lael Brainerd. Um, she goes to Treasury, you could have Yellen, or, 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 or you, you have, uh, you have Brainerd take over the Fed at some point, you have, um, uh, uh, you have Yellen at uh, Treasury, and you got two people that I think would be very, very pro uh, debt monetization, which is otherwise what is called the debt jubilee, uh, which is actually another form of MMT. And I think that's what we're going to be going to. Now, if we embark on, on, on monetizing the debts, which we're very close to doing right now, but not outright, um, 
that's one of the ways ultimately that you default your way out of the debt. You don't actually do a technical default that gets the rating agencies all up in arms, but you try to do your best to reflate your way out of it. Uh, and so I think what comes out of this election, um, because we're not going to be getting any major fiscal thrust, it means the central banks become that much more aggressive. Well, look how far they've gone already. We've seen the central banks that they will be extremely aggressive. And I think that could, would be one solution. And the reason why central banks have not really done outright debt monetization is because it's, it's a massive experiment. This is more than just doing quantitative easing. This is a situation where you can, as a central bank, lose control of the monetary base. Now, well, what's, uh, that, what, David, sorry, what's, your, what's the implications for the U.S. currency under a debt monetization? Well, the, the, you see, under that scenario, the U.S. dollar gets trashed, which is what yeah. I was going to say, uh, which is that uh, it would have to be a G4. It would have to be the Bank of England, the BOE, the BOJ, the ECB, and the Fed. They would have to do it together. But look, mm. they've done everything else together, right? They've, yeah. uh, you know, starting in 08 and 09. So it would have to be coordinated or else the U.S. dollar would get crushed. Right. Um, so maybe it becomes, you know, but, but, but gold once again uh, in that environment, because if you're going to ask me, uh, that, would be, that would be a shock, uh, outright debt monetization. Like we're talking a situation here where what happens with this, people are going to ask the question, what happens is this, what happens is that, is that the treasury places a $10 trillion perpetual bond on the Fed's balance sheet. And the Fed then prints the money and gives it to the treasury to do with it what it wants. It could retire debt or it could spend the money and bypass Congress. Um, so uh, that's what I think is going to be the end end game, wow. depending on how big the output gap is. That, that would be certainly something that would cause me to change my view uh, on inflation from a policy shock standpoint. Wow. Um, but it would be definitely, that would be, uh, if, if you remember going back of quantitative easing, or what I call QE light. Whoever thought we'd call it QE light when Bernanke Yeah, it's not to the point we're calling it QE light. Well, now, you know, Lord. you know, gold went gold went up 40 to 50 percent in that yeah. first era of QE. Imagine what it does in an era of debt monetization. Unprecedented numbers. David, we have so many questions from the audience here. I don't want to hog all the time to myself, although I have so many more questions, but I will shelf mine in the entrance of the audience. Let's get through some of these. Uh, David often refers to investments with utility-like characteristics. Can he elaborate on the specific characteristics he likes to see while touching on hard assets and not just the equities? Right. Well, what I, already. look, what, what I was getting at was this. You know, we, we had a, a, a even as of today, with all the stimulus, uh, the personal savings rate in the United States is, is 14%. Uh, the old normal leading into uh, the pandemic was 7%. Uh, we actually just wrote a report on where is the new equilibrium savings rate. I want to make this point, make it emphatically. When I talk about a, a fundamental shift in behavior, we went into this pandemic with over half of the households in North America, over half of the households did not have enough savings or liquidity, cash on hand to get through three months of an idling in economic activity. Think about that for a second. I mean, in the context of unemployment rates that we hadn't seen in five decades, over half the household sector didn't have enough savings to get through three months of idle activity and had to rely on the good graces of the federal government in terms of handouts or income transfers uh, to be more polite. Uh, so how people approach spending and saving is gonna change materially. We're into a new and permanently higher level of the savings rate. I would submit to everybody in the group, and I'm going to sound like a professor again, 
that the most important behavioral aggregate out of all the data is the savings rate that comes out of the national accounts. The savings rate, the collective decision in the consumer sector, how much am I going to spend on my paycheck and how much am I going to put away? And you put away some for retirement, or you should, but you should put some for a rainy day. Nobody had, or few people had, the people that needed it didn't have enough money to get through. I'm talking about precautionary savings. So I'm talking about that when I'm talking about um, the utility-like characteristics is, is you want to focus on companies that cater to what you need, not what you want, what you need. So that would mean healthcare. That would mean consumer staples. That would mean um, some segments of technology. Like basically when we talked about turning your home into your workstation, uh, all of a sudden that means that, uh, that wiring your home, we're talking about internet infrastructure, uh, you know, cloud computing. Uh, we're talking about uh, anything that's digital or has an online service presence. Do not notice all these grocery chains now, online, online delivery. So, you know, could you argue that Microsoft has become a, an essential or utility-like characteristics? Absolutely. Yeah. Could you say that about Amazon? Absolutely. Uh, you might even say that some, somehow about Netflix to some extent. Yeah. Um, but there are, and certainly I would include Google. Now, I'm not so sure I would include Facebook in there. I, I probably wouldn't. But even what we used to think of these large-cap tech uh, cyclical companies have morphed themselves and have been re-rated uh, as utilities. And in fact, I would even say utility stocks themselves, which have been hurt, just like REITs have been hurt this year because of concerns over payments uh, from, as people are declaring insolvency or having trouble making their payments. Um, you've had some areas that have been hurt this year, the banks, uh, utilities, and the REITs for all for the pretty well the same reason. Uh, credit uh, and late payments uh, being a good part of that. Uh, I actually think there's been a very good buying opportunity in a lot of these areas. So uh, I would say oil and gas, the same thing. Oil and gas, uh, I mean, look, now we know for sure um, that uh, uh, people can talk about, I mean, the big concern was going to be a green energy boom in the United States. Well, you know, it was funny. I, was, I, was, I, was, I had CNBC on earlier. They were talking about who would have known that oil and gas would have had their the best week in 30 years, the oil and gas stocks with a Biden victory. Well, because the Biden victory, he's, he's you know, the, the, the strongest person in Washington isn't Biden. It's, it's, it's Mitch McConnell. He, like, he's running the Senate. Nothing's happening without Mitch McConnell. So there's no green energy boom. And you're taking a look at some of these sectors uh, that are in what I call, uh, you know, these other, the companies I talked about before uh, are trading at very high multiples, but there's other utility-like characteristics, and I said utilities themselves, water utilities, electric and gas utilities. Uh, the U.S. banks are trading at egregiously low multiples. Uh, well, guess what? I, it's going to be difficult to run the economy without the banks. Uh, the U.S. and the Canadian banks look very good to me. So when I talk mm. about utility characteristics, what I'm saying is, you know what? No, I don't think I'm going to buy the consumer discretionary stocks. I think that when people talk about travel, leisure, the airlines, yes, they'll get a pop for maybe a couple of months when uh, coming out of the vaccine. You already saw a template for that, what happened on Monday. That's a trade. That's not a trend. Mm -hmm. So the trend is going to be to focus on the parts of uh, the economy and the parts of the market that cater to a higher precautionary savings rate. And those are some of the examples that I just gave that fit into that theme. Really, really interesting stuff. Thinking about certain tech plays with a utility lens on it. That's very interesting. That's the 
kind of contrarian thought that you've become famous for. David, we have a lot of uh, viewers here. You've really outlined very strongly and very eloquently what's going on, what your thoughts around gold are. But we have a lot of our viewers obviously interested in the base metals. Um, now, it's a diversified metal. Listen, they, copper performs different um, than cobalt. And the, the, well, it is a battery metal, but they all have their own kind of profile. But in general terms, you've laid out the case for a deflationary environment. What does that mean for the base metals complex in general terms? Well, the, the base metals in general are correlated mostly uh, to the Chinese economy. Uh, and uh, so uh, I would say that, look, be the, the, the base metals, they've had a very nice run. Uh, it's, not a, it's not really a core part of my theme. Uh, I think that if we go to an inflationary environment, they also uh, will be good hedges. Uh, the one thing they have to know about an inflationary cycle, if we get there, uh, if that's your view, is that is that companies tend to want to build inventory more quickly in an inflationary world. That that feeds into uh, a positive um, uh, commodity environment. You know, much like we had uh, in the 1970s, the stagflation was actually very good news for the commodity sector at large. Uh, you know, not just gold, but um, the link between Chinese GDP and commodities uh, is incredible. And you know, it's the irony of ironies that the epicenter of the pandemic, the cause of the pandemic is China. Uh, They're the first ones out. Of course, you know, they, they beat the pandemic. They didn't need a vaccine. They just basically needed a, uh, a totalitarian state, uh, <laughs> you know, say that, uh, you know, you leave your house, you're dead. Uh, and so they, 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 they came, first economy that came out there by far the fastest growing economy in, in the world in the next 10 years, they will supplant the U.S. as the largest economy in the world. I said before, the U.S. is primarily service-driven. Well, China has a vibrant service sector, but it's still primarily a good sector. In, over time, becoming more service-oriented. Um, but their GDP growth is, uh, you know, as the U.S. is going to be struggling with 1%, 2%, in fact, it'll maybe even be lower than that in other parts of the Western world. Uh, China is coming out of this. Um, you know, I hate to say it, uh, and this is going to be a big problem for, I was saying, for whoever the president was going to be, uh, dealing with China's accelerating ascendancy uh, as far as capturing more and more share of global GDP uh, is something that we got to keep our eye on. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't think that it's reversible. Uh, they come out of this, I mean, th their interest rates are 3%. If there's any country in the world that has capacity to cut interest rates to stimulate growth, it's them. They never blew their brains out on fiscal policy to get their economy moving. And they never blew their brains out on monetary policy to get their economy moving. They just basically shut down the economy. And then we saw what happened. So uh, it's, 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 it's not difficult for me uh, to have a constructive stance towards the base metals uh, sector uh, when I have a view that uh, the primary source of demand globally, considering that China consumes half the world's metals, uh, their economy is going to remain at least six to 7% growth uh, as far as the eye can see. And that, by the way, is with a very challenging labor force environment. Uh, the thing about China is they have tremendous productivity growth, the fastest in the world. Uh, and that's not going to change because as we were engaging in financial engineering the past 10 years, North America to goose earnings per share, uh, China was ramping up their productivity uh, and, uh, it's paying off right now on accelerating supply side growth. But I'd say that China is your key to success on uh, the base metal side and that bull market probably remains intact.
Well, it certainly feels like, if anything, this mad, mad world, again, I'm quoting you on that, seems to have just accelerated that trend of China's rise uh, to challenge the, the dominance of the U.S. The, uh, you know, my two go-tos are yourself and um, uh, Ray Dalio as well. I, I think he has a lot of good to say. I'd love to get your thoughts. Ray Dalio's theory is the, the three big motives that are going to define motifs that are going to define investing going forward. The monetary, the debt monetary, we've already covered that extensively. The wealth gap, we've touched upon that as well. And the third one being the rise of China to cha challenge U.S. supremacy and the, the global scale. Do you agree? Are those the three big factors that we need to be watching for? Is there any additional ones? What's your th is that a good framework? Uh, for I, well, I, I would say that that's 100% true. I, I'd add in one more, uh, which is um, demographics. And I guess maybe I was schooled in uh, graduate school at University of Toronto by David Foote, uh, who is Canada's uh, most renowned demographer. And uh, demography is, is two thirds of everything. Uh, when they say demographics is destiny, um, that's a truism. So I think that the aging population uh, and the implications that's going to have on savings, uh, on consumption, uh, and the pressures it will put on fiscal finances, uh, social security, that is going to put on tremendous strain. We are getting towards the end of that tunnel. In the next 10 years, we will have a huge fiscal crisis if we don't start to address the unfunded liabilities uh, in the pension system. Uh, and so compared to 10 years ago, look, the median age of the boomer now uh, is uh, you know, getting well into the 60s and uh, getting into retirement age. We're 10 years older than we were at the time of the last crisis. So I'd say that the demographic pressures in the Western world uh, is a ticking time bomb from a fiscal finance perspective. Maybe that would feed in tangentially to what Ray said on, uh, on, 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 on MMT, uh, because that's maybe, maybe that's, right. maybe that's the only way out. The, the, the problem there is, and we talked about this earlier, about inflation. And let's say we create the inflation. You know, for decades, the central bankers wanted to create price stability. We got global deflation pressure. That hasn't been too much fun. Then you get inflation. We're going to get too much of it. But the problem is that how is inflation going to play out for these aging boomers uh, that live on fixed income? Uh, they might get more yield, uh, maybe on their portfolio, but their cost of living is going to go up dramatically. Uh, so. Uh, it, there's there's no get out of jail free card, um, but everything that Ray talked about leads me towards a view that, and that's why I said five years, not one, not two, not three. Uh, but if you have a five to ten year view, I think that we could go through a new cycle down the road of much higher inflation that's being priced into the forward curve right now. If you're willing to go out that far, fascinating stuff. David, you've been so generous with your time. We're over an hour. I want to sneak in just one last one from the audience because we have so many here and I, we can't get to them all. But I think uh, hopefully it's a bit of a quick one and it is very topical, uh, this whole Bitcoin versus gold. So if you're constructive on gold, do you have a position on Bitcoin? Is, is this for real? Is it a valid alternative to fiat currency? Look, I, I think that crypto uh, is here to stay. Um, I, 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 I personally, when people ask me, I prefer gold. Uh, because uh, to me, it's uh, to me, gold is, is, is more transparent and it's less volatile. Uh, I, I, that's what I like gold. I, wh why do you want to own gold? I want to own gold because of its stability characteristics in an unstable world. Right. And Bitcoin 
is so volatile. It reminds me actually of what sort of unstable world that we're in. I want to have the inverse of that. Uh, right. So I don't want to, if I want to have volatility in my life, I'll just go buy the stock market. Yeah. I don't have to go buy Bitcoin. I'll <laughs> go buy the stock market. If I want volatility uh, and I want to take the downside risk, but get the unlimited upside capture, I'll just go to the equity market. Why would I want to go into, into Bitcoin? Uh, if I want stability and an insurance policy, uh, I'd want to buy, I'd want to buy gold for the stability characteristics. I don't think the stability characteristics, when you look at the volatility, is something Bitcoin can really boast about. Very well said, and I think a great note to to end it on, David. It's been really a pleasure to be able to sit down and talk to you at such an intense time in our our collective history together. We thank you for sharing your thoughts and your wisdom with us. It was it was great to be on. Happy to do it again. Thank you once again for joining us on the Northern Miner podcast. There you have it, David Rosenberg. Stick to your gold. Deflation, inflation, whatever happens, should bail you out. Not enough people have that allocation. Anyway, I'd just like to thank you once again for listening and for joining us once again on the Northern Miner podcast. Thanks to the staff, who I know listen pretty regularly, and to everybody out there. We're going to lead you into the holiday season in style. Lots of exciting stuff happening. Until next week, I wish you the best and take care.